0: Our scripture day comes from Romans four, and I feel I need to give you a disclaimer before reading this and this sermon. Today's dense, uh, and it's not my fault; it is Paul's fault. Um, and if you don't understand anything that we're about to read, that's okay. Uh, I wrote a sermon about it. We're going to talk about it. Um, I just wanted to let you know this passage is filled with a lot of different things, and so just buckle up; uh, it's going to it's going to be great. I promise. Um, hear now these words from Romans. Chapter 4, verse 13 through 25. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there transgression. For this reason, the promise depends on faith. Faith in order that it may rest on grace, so that it may be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all of us, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations, according to what was said. So, shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old. And the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, It was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over for our trespasses, and was raised for our justification. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So friends, I've probably talked about this before, but uh, one of my favorite Jesus movies lately, it's fairly recent, I think the last four or five uh, years is a movie called Mary Magdalene. And the movie stars real-life husband and wife Rooney Mara and Joaquin Phoenix as Jesus, which is wild. Uh, and the movie follows the ministry of Jesus through the eyes of Mary. And we don't know a lot about Mary. So the movie takes a lot of creative license throughout, but it does some things really, really well. The movie portrays probably the setting... Uh, of Galilee and Jerusalem, probably the best of any Jesus movie I've ever seen. It feels like you're there in the temple. It feels like you're on the seaside of Galilee. And in one of its greatest scenes, I showed this to our women's Bible study uh, this past Wednesday. In one of the greatest scenes in this movie, Jesus and his disciples they are shown entering Jerusalem and the temple during a festival week, and the crowd is it's huge. It's enormous. Money. You watch as money is exchanged for animals and the animals are taken for slaughter as a means of forgiveness from God per the ritual. And you know this scene from Scripture. It's in every gospel. It's typically referred to as the cleansing of the temple because Jesus gets a little angry. Now, the camera shows the crowd and the sacrifice, but its main focus is on Jesus watching all of it happen. And you can tell he's getting frustrated. You can tell he's getting mad. And so he walks up to one of the chief priests. And if you remember in the Gospel of Mark, the scene is really short in the Gospel with Jesus quoting Scripture. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the screenwriters of the movie have done their best to add additional dialogue to the scene to give it a little bit greater weight and to really show you what is going on in Jesus' heart. And so Jesus questions the, the priest. He questions the sacrificial practice. He questions everything that has been built around this temple ritual, the way of life and the application of this religion. And Jesus, as he looks around at the people purchasing and buying their forgiveness, he asks the priest, is this pe- how people show true repentance? Have their hearts been altered when they leave this place? Have their hearts been altered? Now I think, I tend to think that the screenwriters capture the heart of Jesus well in that question. After all, I think throughout the Gospels, that seems to be a pretty big concern for Jesus. The heart. And if your religion is not affecting and altering your heart, is it any good? Have their hearts been altered when they leave this place? Watching that scene, it made me wonder about About this place, about this campus, about us, about what we do in here on Sunday mornings, about this body of believers. I wonder if through fellowship together, if through the relationships we build through music and tradition and reading and singing and sermons, I truly wonder have our hearts been altered when we leave this place? Or are we merely paying lip service to some sense of duty that we feel we have? Is there a spark? Or has the fire died? Have our hearts been altered? To me, that's the central question of Paul in Romans, one of the central questions. It's his last and his longest letter written to a community he never really got to know that well. And he's curious about the work that God is doing in their hearts. In fact, he's written a a letter to care for their hearts because he's heard that there might be a conflict. If you read an epistle of Paul, you know that the early church had conflict. And the conflict that's going on right now, it's a little bit the result of powers beyond their control. You see, before Emperor Nero, who is responsible for Paul's death, Emperor Claudius is in charge. And during his reign, while this fledgling Roman church is in its early stages, Claudius apparently expelled some Jews from Rome because of some social disturbances. And because he expels the Jews, this Jewish population, it seems that the Roman Christian community, while they're gone, becomes pretty Gentile. (laughs) And because of that, when the Jews were allowed back, they came back to a very different church than they left. Now, pause for a second. I want you to remember the Christian movement was first and foremost a Jewish movement. And as it moved into the Gentile world, there was tension. Because the Jews are a people of the Torah, of the law. They have tradition and dogma that's very important to them And as the church grew and began reaching out to Gentiles, some of the Jewish Christians fully expected that any and all Gentile converts would adopt their ways. But a theme, if you read any of the New Testament, a theme of Paul's ministry is telling folks that Gentiles don't have to adhere to all the Jewish ways. In fact, this Jesus stuff is actually a whole new ballgame. And so... After the return of these Jewish Christians, Paul writes this letter to help this ethnically mixed community knit itself back together, both practically and religiously. He's trying to glue this community of conservative Jews and liberal Gentiles back together. Now, we wouldn't know anything about that in the 21st century. There are no conservative liberal struggles here. There are no fights over differing ideas or struggles for unity today. No, this is one of a kind. This is a one-time conflict. (laughs) In all seriousness, Romans is sort of a treatise on how to stick together, on how to find the simplest, most common ground that we might all be one. And at its very center is a deep concern for the heart. Now, FYI, if you read Romans, if you go home and you're like, I really want to read Romans this week, uh, I I invite you to to look up the message translation to kind of help you to read along with it, because it is a lot. It is hard to read. And of course it is. Because Paul is trying to break everything down, centuries of religion. He's trying to break down, and he has to do a lot of explaining to get there. He's trying to simplify and explain what it is that Jesus has done for us and what we are to do with that knowledge now. If you've ever tried to explain that to somebody, you know it's hard to break everything that Jesus has done for us into a few sentences. Paul calls what God has done. This is what he says in the first chapter. He calls what God has done, God's powerful plan to rescue everybody who trusts him. I love that. It's God's powerful rescue plan. And it's in, open to anybody who trusts God. And throughout the letter, while Paul does in fact talk about the importance of faith, he words it in some interesting language. You see for Paul, belief or faith is really trust and embrace. He uses those words a lot. Trust and embrace of the way of God. You see these words a lot in the first few chapters. Trust and, embrace. and through these words, Paul, he's already foreshadowing where he's going. Because trust and embrace are words of the heart. He's using heart language. And he wants the community to share in that embrace of God together. But in order to do that, <laughs> he's got to tear them to pieces. <laughs> so if you read Romans 1 through 4, you're like, whoa, this guy's not pulling any punches. He has to point out just how wrong they've been. And he has to show them how wonky their priorities have become. And he does go after the Gentiles for for a bit, but he really goes after the Jewish Christians. And he says to them, these Jewish Christians, being a Jew won't give you an automatic stamp of approval. You don't get in for free. Don't assume that you can lean back in the arms of your religion and take it easy. Did you know he says that God prefers outsiders who keep God's ways over the insiders who don't? Indeed, God is the God of outsider non-Jews as well as insider Jews. God sets right all who welcome his action and enter into it, both those who follow our religious system and those who have never heard of our religion. You see what Paul is doing? He's deconstructing the importance of the institution, the material parts of religion. In the message paraphrase of this letter, Eugene Peterson gives this section the following title. Listen to this. Religion can't save you. And that's what Paul is saying. He's telling the people of the Church of Rome that religious practice is no longer the main uniting force of who we are. There is something, in fact, there is someone greater at work. And in chapter 4, Paul, he's anticipating some of the Jewish Christians arguing back. He's anticipating questions like, well, what about, we're the chosen people of Abraham, right? Right? What about the promise to Abraham? You can't just do away with our religious traditions like that. Aren't we God's people? Aren't we special? And Paul says yes and no. (laughs) You are indeed the people of Abraham, but it isn't just you anymore. Because what we read in Scripture is Abraham entered into what God was doing for him. And that was the turning point. He trusted God to set him right instead of trying to be right on his own. He trusted God. What Abraham received was a gift. It was sheer gift. And Paul says, do you think for a minute that this blessing is only pronounced over those who keep our religious ways and are circumcised? Or do you think it possible that the blessing could be given to those who never even heard of our ways, who were never brought up in our disciplines, and our traditions? It was by embracing What God did for him that Abraham was declared fit before God. Indeed, Abraham is father of all people who embrace what God does for them. Abraham trusted God and his way and then simply embraced God and what he did and what he does. I told you it was dense. So, this is Paul's point to the Jewish Christians Abraham is your father feels like it's right out of Star Wars. Abraham is indeed your father, but not just yours. Because this is not a human or a racial thing. This is not a Jewish or a Gentile thing. This is a faith thing. It's a spiritual thing. Abraham is our father, Jew and Gentile, because when everything was hopeless, Abraham believed anyway. Deciding to live not on the basis of what he couldn't do, but on what God said he would do. That is the faith of Abraham. It is a heart-filled embrace and trust of God that even in the darkness, in the wilderness, in the unknown, God will do something. God is at work. God will save. That's the thing that saved and changed Abraham. It was God's work in the heart. And it altered the trajectory of all time. And Paul says, but it's not just Abraham, it's also us. The same thing gets said about us when we embrace and trust the one who brought Jesus to life when the conditions were hopeless. When we have the same faith, the same trust and embrace of the God who does impossible things, we are to be considered children of Abraham. There's nothing we can do to earn the love and favor and mercy and grace of God. It is only what God does. (laughs) A few weeks ago, we were preparing for Ash Wednesday, and you know we're a clergy short for a minute. So I thought for sure that there wouldn't be that many folks here on an Ash Wednesday who wants to come and contemplate their mortality and death. So I decided to just have one station, just me, for ashes right here in the middle. And sure enough... There were more people here for Ash Wednesday than we'd had in a long time. And one station was a bad idea. And both aisles were back... Who was here for Ash Wednesday at this service? Both aisles were backed up (laughs) all the way to the doors. (laughs) And why? Well, it's not like having an ashen cross mark on your head is going to do anything. Of course not. I wonder why people showed up. I think people showed up to remind themselves that life is short. Death is coming for us all. From dust we come and to dust we return And that there is nothing we can do to change that. There is nothing we can do. But it is all what God can do. There is nothing we can do without the grace of God. There's a comedian named Pete Holmes. I don't know if you all know him. Uh, He says, water can't help but get you wet. And God can't help but love you. There's nothing you can do to increase or decrease the infinite love of God. But there are things you can do to increase or decrease your awareness of that love. And that to me is the point of this moment in Romans that there are some Jewish customs and traditions and things that no longer help, that no longer matter. They no longer keep the fire burning. And to heap them now on, on Gentile Christians is a mistake. And how do you know if these customs are helping or hindering? Perhaps somebody should ask the question, have their hearts been altered when they leave this place? Are the customs we're obeying and following altering our hearts, or are they making it harder for us to understand and to know God? We're in the season of Lent, a season where we traditionally give up something. I don't know if you've done that. I, I learned recently that if you have a baby around this time, that, that kind of takes care of giving things up for you. Um, I think I'm good for a couple of Lents. But here's, here's the question. If the practice of giving up something for Lent does not affect your heart, does not bring you closer to God, is it any good? If what we do in here, if the rituals and the hymns and the standing and the sitting and the sermons, if all that is not working to alter our hearts, to spark something bright within us, is it any good? In one of John Wesley's most famous sermons, it's titled Circumcision of the Heart, he was 30 years old. And John Wesley tackled Romans and this very thing. And in that sermon he says this, The distinguishing mark of a true follower of Jesus, of one who is in a state of acceptance with God, is not either outward circumcision or baptism or any other outward form of religion, but rather a right state of soul, a mind and spirit and heart renewed after the image of him that created it. And years later, when he was 87, one of his last sermons, Wesley would agree with his younger self when he said, I believe the merciful God regards lives and tempers of men and women more than their ideas. I believe God respects the goodness of the heart rather than the clearness of the head and that if the heart of a man or woman be filled with the humble, gentle, patient love of God and humanity, God will certainly not cast them out. That comes from a man who surely knows what God can do in the heart. After all, it was a prayer meeting while reading Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans that a 35-year-old Wesley, broken and discouraged, felt God reach into his heart and warm it in a way that made him sure that God loved him and forgave him and had some things for him to do. And that night his heart was surely altered, and for the rest of his ministry... Wesley sought to be used by God to foster a change in the heart. This past week, we honored and remembered Jack Jackson. Many of you were there on Tuesday. Jack and Patsy have been members here a while. Um, and their daughter, Nancy, has been our preschool director for 27 years. We've baptized members of their family here. Jack, he was a Renaissance man, who had interests all over the place. He was a good man. He was a man who knew who he was, and he was good with it. I love that. And Jack spent his career as a teacher. He taught history, and he also developed the driver's ed program at his school. And just before the service began, like 10 minutes before we had the memorial service, a lady came up to me and Nancy and asked if I could read a letter that she had written to Jack in front of the congregation. Like 10 minutes before. She just handed it to us. It's never happened to me before. And I looked at Nancy, and Nancy looked at me, and Nancy said, Well, can you read it? And I said, Sure. So I did. Many of you were there. The letter was from a student of Jack's named Linda. And I wonder I want to read you the letter. Dear Mr. Jackson, your passing has left a hole in all our hearts, especially for me. I will miss your laugh, I'll miss your bow tie, and I'll miss that you never seem to age. I was one of your driver's ed students, and through the years you taught so many of us how to drive. To this day, I can still hear you saying, slow down, this is a construction zone. I wanted to write to tell you that in high school I didn't get to drive a lot like most of the other kids. I didn't get to practice a lot. I really only got to drive in your class. And I loved your class. I couldn't wait for driver's ed, and countless times you would skip your lunch period and take me out driving so I could get some extra time behind the wheel and you don't know how much that meant to me I remember I didn't get a car until I left home I was 18 years old I bought a 73 Ford Maverick even though I still didn't have a license yet I couldn't even drive it off the lot a friend had to come with me and she drove it with me to my apartment complex where it sat all weekend I could only look at my new car, but as soon as I got my license that next week, I couldn't wait to drive to school to show you my car before anybody else. I write all this to say thank you for everything you did for me. And to tell you how I turned out, I was a shy and isolated kid, but you were there for me. I became a police officer for 32 years, And I did get into a couple of chases in my career, which you never covered in class. (laughs) Mr. Jackson, teachers are very special people, and some touch our lives and hearts beyond words. You were one of those teachers. The mold has been broken. God bless you and keep you, Linda. That is the letter of a student whose heart had been altered because of a man whose heart had been altered. Something was sparked in Jack a long time ago, and it caused him to be a teacher who was after the heart. In Romans 5, Paul says that when our hearts embrace and trust God's ability to change us, to alter us, to make the impossible possible, we throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that he has already thrown open his doors to us. And when we receive this amazing friendship with God, we are no longer content to simply say it. In plotting prose, we sing and shout our praises to God through Jesus, the Messiah. In other words, it affects our hearts. Our hearts are altered. Pastor Barbara Brown Taylor writes this, what if the real test of our success as God's servants Is not what we do, but how we do it. What if the real measure of our extraordinariness as Christians is not our thoughtfulness or our friendliness or our busyness or our worship style or our rules or our dogmas, but rather our spark? Has your heart been altered? Has your heart been warmed? Has your heart embraced the possibilities with God? If not, what's hindering you? Let us pray. God, we're thankful this morning for images, for examples in our lives of people that change us. The people, people that are after our hearts that know there's something deeper at stake. And we know that that is you that work in us. So open our hearts, O God. Help us to strive for what lends itself to that spark within us. Help us to declutter our spirits so that we can make room for you in our hearts. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.